Welcome to the Future of Life Institute podcast. My name is Gus Docker, and I'm here with Samuel Hammond, who is a senior economist at the Foundation for American Innovation. Samuel, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Gus. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. All right. I have so much I want to talk to you about, but I think a natural place to start here would be with your timelines to AGI. Why is it that, that you expect AGI to get here before most people? Well, I don't really know what most people think. I think there's the world divides into people who are paying attention and people who are, you know, basically normies. And in my day job, I work on Capitol Hill and in Washington, D.C., talking to folks about AI. And if you think about sort of what people's implicit timelines are, right, you can sort of read out people's implicit timelines by their behavior, right? You know, I, I know Paul Cristiano has near short timelines because he puts he's doubled up into the stock market, right? <laughs> he's sort of practicing uh, what he preaches. But then when you have, you know, Sam Altman testifying to work to Congress, I like to say people are taking him seriously, but not literally, right? He's saying we're going to develop something like AGI potentially this decade and super intelligence thereafter. And then, you know, you have folks like Senator Marshall Blackburn being like, what will this mean for music royalties? <laughs> and, um, you know, when, when the focus of policymakers is things like music royalties or, um, you know, impact on copyright. It's not that those are invalid issues. It's that they belie relatively longer timelines. And then we also have this definitional confusion where folks like Gian LeCun would say AGI is probably decades away because he is using AGI to mean something that learns like a human learns in the sense that it's born as a relative blank slate and sort of can acquire language with, with you know very few examples. So people have these moving goalposts of what they mean. For me, you know, I, I think we can have sort of avoid those definitional conflicts if we just talk about, you know, human level intelligence and, and, you know, human humans are quite general. We're generally intelligent. That's what separates us from animals um, in a lot of respects. And when you look at how machine learning models are being trained today, like large language models and now multimodal models, they're being trained on human data and they're being trained to reproduce the kinds of behaviors and tasks and outputs that humans output. And so they're kind of like an indirect way of emulating human intelligence. And then so and so if you if you benchmark AI progress to that, then you can sort of put information theoretic bounds on, you know, what, what what's the likely timeline to basically an ideal human emulator, something that can extract the sort of base representations, the, the internal representations of our brain through you know, the indirect path of the data that our brain generates. Yeah, you have an interesting sentence where you write that AI can advance by emulating the generator of human generated data, which is simply the brain. Do, do you think this paradigm holds all the way to AGI? I think it holds this decade to systems that in principle can in context learn anything humans do. Again, this is a semantic question. Do you want to call that AGI or not? I think there are still outstanding issues around you know, the limits of other aggressive models for autonomy and, you know, the question of, of sort of real-time learning, the way we train these models, we sort of are freezing a crystal in place and, and humans are continuously learning. So there still are genuine, you know, potential architectural gaps. But, you know, from the practical point of view, from the economic point of view, we don't need to debate whether something is conscious or whether something le learns strictly the way humans learn. If, if it 
demonstrably can do the things humans do, right? And that, and that goes to the original insight of the Turing test, right? You know, it's sometimes presented as a thought experiment, but what Alan Turing was getting at was if you can't distinguish between the human and a computer, in some ways, indistinguishability implies competence, right? And we can broaden that from just language because arguably we've, we've surpassed the Turing test, at least a weaker version of it, uh, to think to human performance on tasks in general, right? If we have a, a system that can output a scientific manuscript that experts in the field can't distinguish from a human, then the debating whether the, whether this is real AGI or not is, I, I feel, uh, uh, academic. It is surprising in a sense that, that when you interact with GPT-4, for example, and it, it can do all kinds of amazing things and organize information, present information to you, but then it can't, or at least at some point, it couldn't answer questions about the world after September 2021 or a date like that. That would be surprising if you, if you presented that fact to, to an AI scientist 20 years ago. For how long do you think we'll remain in this paradigm of training a foundational model and then deploying that model? Um, I mean, it's worse than that. I think it would surprise people five years ago. Progress is sort of moving along two tracks. There's the industry track and the, the pure research academic track. And, um, and they're obviously having feedback with one another. The pure industry track is just looking to create tools that are, uh, you know, have practical value and can improve products and so forth. And so, you know, Meta has their own GPU cluster and their training models so that they, they, they can have fun chatbots in their, in their messenger. And so, you know, those kinds of things are going to progress, I think, well within current, the current paradigm because we know the paradigm works you know, basically deep learning and transformers. Um, and, you know, there's lots of marginalia on the side, but that basic framework seems to, to be quite effective. And just scaling that up because we haven't sort of hit the range of irreducible loss and what, and what transformers can do. Meanwhile, there's also this parallel pure research track where people on seemingly a weekly basis are finding, you know, better ways of specifying the loss function, uh, ways of, of improving upon power loss scaling and all these, all these different, uh, sometimes they're new architectures, but often they're just like bags of tricks. And, um, and those bags of tricks then, you know, to the extent that they, they uh, comport with the, the paradigm industries uh, running with, they can be re reintegrated and, and end up accelerating progress in industry as well. So do you think scale of compute is the main barrier to getting to, to human level AI? Yes, right. I mean, it's not all we need, but it's, it's the main unlock, right? To what extent can, can more compute be used to, to trade off for lower quality data or for uh, lower quality algorithms? Can, can you just throw more compute and solve the other, the other factors in that equation? It depends on, on the thing you're trying to solve for. In, in, in principle, if, if you're talking about you know, mapping inputs to outputs, then you know, transformers are known to be universal function approximators. And, and so, and so the answer is yes, you know, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily efficient at approximating everything we want them to approximate. And, and sometimes universal function, you know, approximation theorems can be kind of trivial because they'll be like, okay, if your neural network has infinite width then yes, we can, we can approximate everything. The, the, the key fact is both that they're universal approximators and, and also that they're relatively sample efficient, at least relative to things we found in the past. And so that to me suggests that yes, they can compensate for things that they're bad at. Um, on the other hand, 
the way research is trending is towards these mixed models, um, un ensembles of different kinds of architectures, things like the, the recent Q transformer nets from Google DeepMind, which is sort of uses a combination of transformers and Q learning to have sort of the associational memory and and um, and sample efficiency of transformers with the ability to assign policies to do tasks uh, that you get from reinforcement learning. So I imagine that there's going to be all kinds of mixing and matching. The key the key point is that in that space of architectures, it's a relatively sort of finite search space, right? And as an economist, you know, economists believe that supply is long run elastic, right? And so, you know, there's this famous bet from uh, between Paul Ehrlich and Julian Simon vis-a-vis -vis the population bomb and whether population growth would lead to uh, uh, sort of a Malthusian purge. <laughs> and Julian, Julian, Julian Simon, being the economist, recognized that you know, if prices rise for these core commodities, then that will spur research and, and development into extracting new res new resources, right? So he didn't he didn't have to know that fracking would be a technology. He he understood that if oil prices went too high, people would find new oil reserves. And I think there's a, I have an analogous instinct when it comes to progress in deep learning. It meaning you can become too anchored to sort of the current state of the literature, but over a 10-year horizon, you can say, well, there's, there's a huge search on, a huge gold rush to find the right way of, uh, of blending these architectures. And I don't need to know in advance which is the right way to do that to have high confidence that someone will find it. Yeah, we can sometimes, if we're too deep in the in the literature, we might lose the focus on, on, on the forest for, for the trees, in a sense. And, and if we zoom out, we can just see that there's more investment, there's more talent pouring into AI, and so we can predict that something is going to come out, come out of that. You have a, lots of interesting insights about information theory and, and how this can help us predict uh, AI. What's the most important lessons from information theory? The reason I, I start there is because it's sort of in, within the con conceptual realm, it's sort of like the most general thing that bounds everything else. And when you look back at, at the record of, say, you know, Ray Kurzweil, you know, I, I first read The Age of Spiritual Machines when I was a kid. And, and he, you know, in there, he makes a prediction that we'll have AIs that pass the Turing test by you know, 2029 or so. And when was this book uh, written? 1999. Yeah. That's pretty good. Right. And so, you know, and he got, and people will complain that he got things wrong because he said, well, I'll be wearing AR glasses by 2019. Uh, you know, when in fact, like Google Glass came out in 2013 and, and now we have meta glasses five years later. Um, so he, he was like wrong on the exact timing, but sort of right where the technology was wrong, where the minimal viable product was. But nonetheless, like if you look at his track record, it's, it's quite good for a methodology as, as relatively stupid as just staring at Moore's law and <laughs> extrapolating it out. And I think that reveals the, the power of these information theoretic methodologies to forecasting because they, they set bounds on what will be possible. The team at Epoch AI have a, uh, a forecast called the direct approach where it's sort of, you can think of it sort of like a way of putting bounds on when we'll have AIs that can emulate human performance through an information theoretic lens where they're looking at sort of how much entropy does the brain sort of process and how much compute will we have over time and what what's implied by AI scaling laws. And you sort of put those three things together and you can sort of set bounds on when we'll basically be able to brute force 
human level um, intelligence. And, and of course, that's an upper bound because we're going to do better than brute force. We're going to also have insights from uh, cognitive science and neuroscience and also, uh, you know, ways of distilling neural networks and so forth and better ways of curating data. So their modal estimate for human level AI is, is 2029 um, and their meeting is like 2036. And um, I talked to the authors and, the, and they lean, lean towards the 2029, 2030 for their own um, personal forecasts. And you know, so going back to, you know, is, is, is this an outlier? Am I, am I out on a limb here? I, I think among our circles, probably not, but among Congress and among the broader public, I think people are seeing sort of, they, they think everything's an asymptote, right? They, they're imagining, okay, we have these chatbots and they're not seeing the next step. You know, I see a very smooth path from here to systems that can basically in context learn any arbitrary human, human task. And so you know, what does that look like? It looks like systems that can basically sit over your shoulder or can monitor your desktop, your operating system as you work and, uh, you know, watch you for an hour or two and then take over. And that'll be key to overcoming lack of training data or why is, why is it important that they can learn in context? Uh, well, in context learning is, is, um, sort of the secret source of the power of transformer models. They learn these inductive biases and in induction heads and so forth that let them, you know, few shot learn different tasks. So, so. You know, GPT-4 is very good at zero-shot zero learning on, on a variety of different things, but it's, it's incredibly good at few-shot learning. If you give it a few examples, it can kind of pick up where you left off. You know, when I think about myself, when I want to learn a new recipe, right, I can go read a recipe book, but I, often what I, I prefer to do is to go on YouTube and watch someone make that recipe, right? And, and just by watching that person put together the stir-fry, I have enough of a world model and, and enough of knowledge of how to cook in general that uh, I can sort of in-context learn um, how to pick up from there and do that recipe myself. LLMs do that already. Multimodal models are, are increasingly doing that. Um, some of the recent progress in, in robotics, uh, like I mentioned, the Q, Q Transformer paper, it shows that you can basically build robots with a basic world model and then have it learn new tasks with, with fewer than 100 examples of a human demonstration. So the human sort of demonstrates the task and the robot uh, can pick it up and, and take it from there. And why that's important is, is both for understanding the trajectory of AI, but also its economic implementation, because we're sort of used to automation being this thing where you get a contract from IBM and you spend uh, many millions of dollars with consultants and they build you some bespoke thing that doesn't really work very well um, and requires lots of maintenance. And so people have the, this sort of prior that AI, even if it even if it's near, will be rate limited by the real world because of all the complexity of implementation. But the point is, if you have things that can in context learn and, and perform sort of as humans perform, then you don't need to change the process. You can take human designed processes and have the AI just fill it, fill in for the human. And so it leads to this paradox where we're probably going to have AGI before we get rid of the last fax machine. <laughs> yeah. When we think of, say, old IT systems in large institutions, we, we might think of moving from from analog um, storage of, inf of information to to the cloud that that's still going on in some institutions that transformation has taken over a decade now and so what exactly is it that that makes ai different here it is that that ai plugs in directly where the human worker would be yeah precisely you don't you don't need to um you know, redesign an existing process to sort of plug into the automation and that that applies both for sort of the structure of tasks Right. Like so much of uh, mechanical automation takes something like uh, 
the sort of artisanal work of a of a um, of a shoemaker and has to translate it into something repetitive that a machine or a, an automatic seamstress can uh, can do over and over and over, over again. So our older school kind of automation requires sort of collapsing a task into a lower dimension so that so that um, so that simple automations can handle it. But when you have AGI, the, the whole point is generality. It's a flexible uh, intelligence that can map to existing kinds of processes. So that, uh, that that's that's sort of why I think this will catch people by surprise because it's not just it's not just that AGI could be this decade, but that when it arrives and sort of crosses some thresholds of reliability, the implementation frictions could be very low. And do you expect? Would AI have to get all the way there in order to substitute for for a human worker? I mean, I would expect it to be a bit more gradual than that, taking over, say, twenty percent of tasks before forty percent of tasks, sixty percent of tasks, and so on. But but here we're imagining that the AI kind of plugs in for the human worker for all tasks. Or what do you have in mind? These things are yeah, you're right, much more continuous. It's not it's not an on or off switch, um, in part because the 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 requisite threshold of reliability varies by the type of task. You know, arguably self-driving cars like Waymo or Tesla have matched human performance, but regulators want them to be 100x better than human before before they're, they're let, let loose on the road because of safety. You know, codecs and coding models are arguably still much worse today than elite programmers, but everyone is using them because even if it generates 50% of your code and you have to go back in and debug, it's still a huge productivity boost. So I think it will vary by, by occupation, by, by sort of task category, sort of modulo the risks and, and stakes involved in, in, those, uh, in those tasks. Yeah, I guess then the question is how many of our jobs fall into the, is more like self-driving cars and how, how many of our jobs is more like programming? Right. I, I mean, um, I've been in a manager position before and I've had research assistants and interns and I know that they're like a, a very lossy compression of, of uh, <laughs> the thing I want to do. And so they, they require oversight and sort of co-piloting. We're sort of in that stage now with AIs and a variety of different types of kinds of tasks. You know, I recently read a paper compare, uh, evaluating the use of GPT-4 for peer review in science. And it found that uh, uh, GPT-4 would write reviews of work that bore some striking correlations with, with, with the points raised by human reviewers, but also left some things out. And so it, it concluded by saying GPT-4, you know, sh- could be a, a, you know, invaluable tool for scientific review, but it's not, it's not about to replace people. And I, th- that's just a case of like, okay, give it five years. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a phenomenon you often see with, with um, some AI models out there and it has some capabilities, but lacks other capabilities. And then people might kind of over anchor on the present capabilities and not foresee the, the way the development is going. I think people are continually surprised at, at the advancement of AI. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Ramez Nam, um, the, uh, the sci-fi author and, and futurist and energy investor, he, he, he gives this talk on solar energy and, and uh, other renewables. And he, and he has this famous graph where he shows the International Energy um, Agency, the IEA. Every year they put out this projection of solar uh, build out. And every year it's like a flat line. But it's like a flat line on an exponential, like the real curve is like going vertical. And every year their projection is that it's just going to plateau. And I feel like um, people make that same uh, mistake. And, and it sort of has this sort of uh, ironic lesson, you know, to the extent that uh, 
we're drawing sort of parallels with the way our brain works and the way these models work, it seems like humans have a very strong autoregressive bias. So, so what's going on there? Is it is it an institutional problem or is it is it a psychological problem? Why is it that we can't um, project correctly in, in many cases? Well, to, to what I just said, I think it's it's probably both, but largely psychological, right? Our brains are evolved for you know hunter-gatherer societies that didn't really change over millennia, and uh, you know even the last 40, 50 years have been a period of relative stagnation where we have a lot of sort of pseudo innovation, and so I think people are just a bit uh, sort of disabused. Okay, you you have some super interesting points about the comparing the human brain how the human brain works to how neural networks uh, learn what is universality in uh, in the context of, of brain learning and neural network learning so universality is a term of art it sort of refers to the fact that different neural networks independently trained you know even on different data uh, will often converge on very similar uh, representations in in their embedding space of that data and you can extend that to striking parallels or isomorphisms between the representations that neural network, artificial neural networks learn and that our brain appears to learn. Probably the, the area of the brain that's been studied the most is the visual cortex. And it, it seems to me as like a layperson that the the broad consensus in neuroscience is that the visual cortex is very similar to a deep convolutional neural network. It's basically isomorphic to our, our uh, artificial deep convolutional neural, neural networks. And you train a CCN on image data, and our brain is trained on our sensory data. Um, and it turns out they end up learning strikingly similar representations. Um, and there are a few reasons for that, right? So, you know, one is sort of um, hierarchies of abstraction. It, it, it makes sense that early layers in a neural network will learn things like edges and and simple shapes, and only later in the only deeper in the network will you learn more subtle features. So there's that sort of sequencing uh, part of it. And then there's also just the energy constraint. You know, gradient descent isn't costless, right? It, it requires energy. It requires a lot of energy. That's, you know, these data centers suck up a lot of energy. Um, the same is true of our brain. You know, our brain consumes a lot of uh, energy, like 25% of our calories. And especially when it's in, in, in uh, when we're young, there's a very strong met metabolic cost associated with neuroplasticity. Our brain being something shaped by evolution was obviously very energy conscious. And so the, those energy constraints greatly shrink the landscape of possible representations from sort of this infinite landscape of all the ways you could represent certain data to a, a much more manageable set of representations. And that doesn't guarantee that we'll converge on the same representations. It's at least suggestive of a, of a, of a weak universality where uh, even when we don't have the exact same representations, they're often a coordinate transformation away from each other. Yeah, it's actually a bit surprising to me. You, as you mentioned, uh, when we train neural networks, we don't have the same energy constraints as the as the brain had during our evolution. And I would expect, again, from evolution, the human brains have many more inbuilt biases and heuristics. Uh, but if we then compare the the representations in a in a neural network to to the those in, in a human brain, we found that they are quite similar. Isn't isn't that the whole point of, of universality. So does the neural network um, have the same heuristics and biases that we have or what's going on here? Well, one of the primary you know, biases in stochastic gradient descent is uh, sometimes called a simplicity preference, basically an, an inductive bias for 
more, more parsimonious representations. Parsimonious in the sense of Occam's razor, right? And that's, that's a byproduct of this uh, information theoretic concept of Kolmogorov complexity, um, where Kolmogorov complexity means is measured by, you know, uh, is there a short program that can reproduce this longer sequence? And if you can find a short program that's sort of a more compact or more compressed way of representing it. And when you're under energy constraints, you're looking for those more compressed representations. Um, and so that simplicity bias seems to be also the origin of generalization, of our ability to, to go beyond merely memorizing data, overfitting our parameters to finding a simpler way of representing those parameters, right? Where we go from sort of fitting a bunch of data points to recognizing, oh, these data points are being generated by a sign function. So I can replace all these, these data points by a simple circuit for that sign function or something like that. What can we learn about AI progress when we consider the hard steps that humans and our ancestors have gone through in, in evolution? It's beyond evolution. Um, this is often comes up in the discussion of the Fermi paradox. Uh, life on Earth to exist at all, let alone intelligent life, had to pass through many hard steps, right? We had to have a planet in a habitable zone. <laughs> we had to have, uh, you know, the, the right mix of organic chemicals um, in the Earth's crust and so forth. We had to have the conditions for abiogenesis, the emergence of the, the very earliest sort of non-living replicators, probably, you know, some kind of polymer type of crystal structure. Then we had to have, you know, the transition from single cell to multicellular organisms, the transition through the Cambrian explosion, right? All, all, every one of these steps you could think of as a very unlikely improbable thing, all the way up to, you know, the development of warm-blooded mammals and uh, sort of uh, social animals that were, were heavily selected for, for brain size to, to then the sociocultural hard steps of like moving from small group primates to, to sort of settled technological uh, cultures, then, you know, technological hard steps like the discovery of the printing press or the discovery of the transistor. You put those all together and life seems just incredibly unlikely. And, you know, this often goes to the, the, the point of view that, you know, creationists or, or intelligent designers would, would put forward. But then you zoom out and then you recognize, oh, wait, there are you know, trillions of galaxies, each with trillion, you know, hundreds of billions of stars and hundreds, hundreds of billions of trillions of planets. There's, a, there's an awful lot <laughs> of uh, potential variation out there. And, and then meanwhile, every one of these hard steps seems characterized by a search problem that is very hard. But then once you find the correct thing, like the earliest self-replicator, um, things kind of take off, right? So you imagine that... Before the earliest self-replicator, there were millions or, or, or billions of attempts to, to self-replicate like that, that didn't succeed. Yeah, it's just a huge search problem, right? And, you know, maybe there are more gradual intermediate stages where you have sort of, uh, uh, you know, everything in biology ends up looking way more gradual the more you learn about it. But there are these phase transitions where you tip over and you get the Cambrian explosion or you get the printing press and the printing revolution. And so those hard steps end up looking relatively, uh, look, they look more easy in retrospect, uh, because even though the search was hard, once you once you tripped over the correct solution, there's sort of an autocatalytic self-reinforcing loop that pulls you into a new regime. And indeed, when you look at the emergence of life on Earth relative to 
the age of the universe. Um, and Avi Loeb with some uh, co-authors ha have done this. Life on Earth is incredibly early. Like, you know, the universe is 13.7 billion years old, but life couldn't emerge uh, really much sooner. The reason being the, you know, the universe started out as hot and dense, and had to cool down. Uh, stars had to form. Those stars had a supernovae so they could produce the heavy, heavy elements that, um, that are essential to life. And then those solar systems had to then take shape uh, and then, and then had to further cool. So the solar system wasn't being, you know, ir irradiated constantly. Um, and when you put all those factors together, human life emerged basically as soon as it was possible for life to emerge anywhere. And so this, this is one way to answer the Fermi paradox is that we're just in the first cohort, right? But it also should give you strong priors that passing through those hard steps isn't as hard as it looks. And what's the lesson for AI here? Developing AGI is, is sort of a hard step. <laughs> uh, we're doing this kind of uh, gradient search for the right algorithms, for the right uh, what have you. Um, and we seem to be now in a slow takeoff where we've figured out the core ingredients and there's now an autocatalytic process that's pulling us into a new phase. And what do you mean by autocatalytic? Self-reinforcing. Um, you know, once it, once it gets started, it, it, it sort of pulls itself. It sort of has an as-if teleology, right? You see this in nature, but you also see this in, you know, in capitalism. <laughs> and you would expect us to get to advanced AI basically as soon as it's computationally possible? It, it, it basically seemed that way, right? Like, you know, there was a kind of tacit collusion between Google and, and other players in the space to, you know, they had transformer models since 2017, but really, you know, there's some of the precursors to transformers go back to the early nineties. But, you know, once you have this sort of profit opportunity, that's, that's in the background, it, it's hard in a competitive environment to stop an open AI from being like, oh, let's, uh, let's chase those profits. Um, and then once that all gets rolling, it's basically impossible to stop. This is, this is why, you know, whatever the merits of the pause letter, it, it's virtually impossible to, to, to really have a pause in AI development because, it, because everything is, is uh, sort of structured by these game theoretic uh, incentives to just keep going faster. Once you've stumbled on the gold reserve, uh, it's hard to keep the, uh, the prospectors from running there. Samuel, is the US government prepared for advanced AI? No, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, um, where do I start? Uh, I mean, the U S government's in, if you think of it at, at, from a firmware level, you know, many countries have national IDs. The U S doesn't have a national ID. We have social security numbers. There, there are these like nine digit numbers that date back to 1935. We have, uh, uh, the core administrative laws date back to the early forties, you know, much of our sort of technical infrastructure, like the, the, uh, the system the IRS runs on, uh, date back to the Kennedy administration and are written in assembly code. There's also been this general decline in what you could call state capacity, sort of the ability for the U.S. government to um, execute on things. And you hear about this all the time. You hear about how, you know, the, the Golden Gate Bridge was built in four years or something like that. Uh, and now it takes like 10 years to build an access road. One of the reasons for that goes to what uh, the, the legal scholar Nicholas Bagley has called the procedural fetish. Really, since the 70s, the machinery of the U.S. government has shifted towards a reliance on explicit process, right? And proceduralism has pluses and minuses. If you have a 
a clear process, government can kind of run on autopilot to an extent. But it also means you limit the room for discretion and you limit the flexibility of government to move quickly. And moreover, in, in our adversarial legal system, you also uh, open up avenues for sort of con- continuous judicial review and legal challenge where, um, you know, famously New York uh, has taken over three years to approve uh, congestion pricing on one of their bridges because, because it has to undergo environmental review and people who don't want to pay the congestion price keep suing. Do you think having more procedures would make it easier for AI to interface with, with, uh, with governments? I would say having fewer procedures would make it easier for government to adapt. My assumption would be that, that, that having something written down, having a procedure for something would make it easier for, for AI to, to plug AI into that procedure. If it's, if it's uh, less opaque and, and more kind of a, almost like an algorithm step by step. Yes. Um, but the, you know, the analogy I would give is to you know, the Manhattan Project, right? The, Manha- the, the original Manhattan Project was run like a startup. You had uh, Oppenheimer and General Leslie Grove sort of being the the technical founder and the, uh, the you know, type A get things done founder. And, you know, they broke all the rules. They, they, you know, pushed, pushed as hard as they could. They're managing at, at, at its peak, like a hundred thousand people in secret. And they built the nuclear bomb in, in three years. Right. And so the way we would do that today under a procedural fetish framework would be to put out a bunch of requests for proposals and, uh, have some kind of a uh, competitive bid, <laughs> <laughs> and and then we'd probably get like the lowest cost bid and it would be like Lockheed Martin and they would um uh you know build half an atom bomb and it would take 20 years and uh five times the budget um and so so that that's sort of what I'm getting at it's not it's not about uh process versus discretion per se it's about the way process hobbles and straightjackets our ability to adapt and sort of represents a kind of sclerosis a kind of uh sort of like crystallized intelligence. We, we, we lay down the things that worked in the past as process and sort of freeze those processes in place, ossifying um, a, a particular modality, right? And when the, when the mode of production shifts and you need to completely tear up that process root and branch, it's, it's very difficult because often there's no process for changing the process. Yeah. I, I wonder if, if there are lessons for how government will respond to AI in, in thinking about how governments responded to, to say, historical technical innovations of, of a similar magnitude, uh, like the Industrial Revolution or the, the printing press or maybe the internet uh, computer. Do you think we can draw general lessons or is it, is it uh, so specific that we can't really extract information about the future from them? I think they're very powerful general lessons. You know, I think one of the first general lessons is that every major technological uh, transformation in human history has has preceded a institutional transformation. You know, whether it's the shift from nomadic to to settled city states with the agricultural revolution, or um, you know, the rise of modern nation states or the the end of feudalism with with the printing press, to you know, in the New Deal era, the sort of transition with industrialization from the kind of laissez-faire classical liberal phase of um, 18th century America to, to an America with um, a robust welfare state and administrative bureaucracies, um, and really an all, all, an all new constitutional order, right? And so there's sort of better and worse ways for this transition to happen. There's, there's sort of the internal regime change model, and you can think of, you know, Abraham Lincoln or, or FDR as inaugurating a new republic, a new American republic. 
or there's a scenario where we don't change because we're too crystallized and sort of like an innovator's dilemma get displaced by some new upstart. And there are different countries have different abilities and different sort of capacities for that, that internal adaptation. Um, as a Canadian, I'm a big fan of like Westminster style uh, parliamentary systems. And one of the reasons is because it's very easy for parliamentary systems to shut down ministries, open up new ministries to re reorganize the civil service because it's, it's sort of uh, vertically integrated under the prime minister's office or, or what have you. Um, in the U.S., it's, it's much worse because given the separation of powers, you know, Congress and the executive are uh, often not working well together, <laughs> just, to put it, just to, to, as an understatement. But then moreover, the different federal agencies uh, have a sort of a life of their own. Often they're you know, self-funded and all these other things that make it very difficult to reform. Do you think Canada responded better to, to the rise of the Internet than the U.S., for example? Isn't there something wrong with the story because the U.S. kind of birthed the Internet and Canada you know, adopted the, the Internet from, from the U.S.? Let's compare, first of all, uh, the, the impact of the Internet on, on weaker states, because, you know, Canada and the U.S. are, are similar or sort of in, in, in one quadrant. Um, they have differences, but the differences are small compared to other countries. If you think about like Internet safety discussions that would have been taking place in the early 2000s, people would have been talking about, you know, identity theft, credit card theft, child exploitation, um, these kind of like direct first order potential harms from the Internet. They didn't foresee that concurrent with the rise of, of mobile um, and social media, that the internet would enable tools for mass mobilization simultaneous with a kind of legitimacy crisis where the sort of new transparency um, and information um, access that the internet provided eroded trust in government and trust in other institutions. So you have these two, two forces interacting the internet exposing government and exposing corruption and leading to de a decline in trust while also creating a platform for people to rise up and mobilize against uh, against that corruption, right? And it's something that that kind of rhymes with the printing press and the printing revolution, where you had these sort of um, dormant, suppressed minority groups like the Puritans or the Presbyterians, the nonconformists, and with the, with the collapse of the censorship pr printing licensing regime, they actually had a licensing regime in, 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 in uh, the UK parliament uh, back circa 1630. Uh, uh, that licensing regime collapsed, or I think 1634 or something around there. And that, that uh, was like five years before the English Civil War. And you see something like this in the Arab Spring, where the internet quite directly led to mass mobilization in Cairo and Tunisia and elsewhere, um, and led to actual regime change, in some cases, sort of temporary state collapse. And that's because those were weaker states that hadn't democratized, that hadn't sort of had their own information revolution earlier in their history the way we did, right? In some ways, like the American Republic is sort of a founder country built on the backbone of the printing revolution. So we were, we were a little bit more robust to that because it's sort of part of our ethos to have this open, uh, disagreeable society. But clearly, it's also, the internet has also affected the legitimacy of Western democracies. I think it's they're clearly one of the major inputs in sort of rising populism, the mass mobilizations that we, we see, whether in the U.S. context, the, the 2020, uh, you know, racial awakening or, or the January 6th uh, sort of peasant rebellion. Right. These these look these these sort of look like the kind of color revolutions that we see abroad. And, you know, some people want to ascribe conspiracy theories 
to that, I, I think there's a simpler explanation, which is, which is that people will self-organize with the right tools. Our state hasn't collapsed yet, but it's clearly, it, it, there's clearly a lot, of, um, a lot of cracks in the foundation, if you will. Is it, would it be fair to say that the main lesson for you from history is that technological change brings institutional change? Yeah, you know, not not necessarily one for one. I'm not I'm not kind of a vulgar Marxist on this, but uh, but yes, and the, and the reason for that is because institutions themselves exist due to a certain cost structure, and if you have general purpose technologies that that dramatically change that the the nature of that cost structure, then institutional change will follow. Yeah. And I think we want to get to that, but before we do, I think we should discuss AI's impact on the the broader economy. So, so not just the government, but the, but the economy in general. Economists have this fallacy they they um, they point out often the lump of labor fallacy. Maybe you could explain that. Uh, the lump of labor fallacy is essentially the idea that there's a fixed amount of work to be done. If you were thinking about the industrial revolution and what would happen to the fifty percent of people who are in agriculture, you you couldn't imagine the new jobs that would be created. But new jobs were created. And the reason is because human wants are infinite. And, and so, you know, demand will always fill supply. <laughs> uh, the second reason is because there's a kind of circular flow in the economy where one person's cost is another person's income. Society would collapse if we had true technological unemployment because there'd be things being produced, but no one to pay for them. <laughs> and so that ends up kind of bootstrapping new industries and, and new sources of, of production. There, there's still this open question is like, is this time different? Yeah, that's what I, that is, that's exactly what I want to know. Because I mean, for me, it's, it's, uh, or in retrospect, let's say it's, it's easy to see how, how workers could move from, from fields to, to factories into, into offices. But if we have truly general AI, it's, it's difficult for me to see where workers would move, especially if we have also functional robots and perhaps AIs that are better at uh, taking care of people than, than, than other people are. Uh, I'm not asking you to predict specific jobs, but I'm asking you whether, whether you think this tr- historical trend will hold uh, with the advent of advanced AI. You know, the first, first thing to say is, you know, when Keynes wrote um, Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, a famous text where he predicted that technological progress would lead to uh, the growth of, of a leisure society. And this was in the 1930s. Yeah. Uh, you know, people have dismissed him as being wrong. Um, but actually you look at time use data and employment data and people are working less, you know, it's, it's not, it, it didn't match his, the, the optimism of his projection, right? Because, uh, it turns out, you know, maybe, maybe if we fixed living standards at, at what he expected, people, people want more and people will work more for more. But overall, people are working less. People do have more leisure. We, we've sort of moved to a de facto four-day work week. So there is, there is one world where rapid technological progress sort of continues that trend, and we all work less. It's sort of a technological unemployment that's spread across people and is, is, is enabled in part because in a world of AGI, maybe you only have to work if, you know, a few hours a day to you know, make $100,000 a year. There's another... another uh, possibility, which is that, well, AGI could in principle be a perfect emulation of humans on specific tasks. It can't emulate the historical formation of that person, right? So what I mean by that is if you had a perfect atom by atom replication of the Mona Lisa, it wouldn't sell at auction. 
right? Because people aren't just buying the physical substrate. They're also buying the kind of world line <laughs> of, of that thing. And, and that's clearly the case in humans as well. Like there, there are certain, you know, talking heads that I go and, and enjoy not because they are the smartest or, or what have you, because I, I, I'm interested in what that person thinks on this um, because they have a particular personality, a particular world line. And then the third factor is uh, sort of um, artificial scarcity, right? And so even in a world with, with, um, a, with abundance and supply uh, in uh, services and goods, there are still things that will be intrinsically scarce, uh, real estate being, being probably the canonical thing, but also energy and commodities and so forth. And the reason real estate is intrinsically scarce is because people, you know, want to live near other people and, and people want to live in uh, particular areas of a city. You know, they want to live in the, the posh part of town, right? And those are positional goods. We can't all live in the, the trendy loft. So that builds in a kind of artificial scarcity. And so people will still be competing over those things. This is sort of related to artificial scarcity, but there's also sort of break it out into a fourth possibility, which are, which are sort of tournaments and things that are structured as tournaments. Having chess bots that are strictly better than humans at chess uh, hasn't killed you know, people playing chess. If anything, uh, more people play chess today than have had in human history. Yeah, it's more popular than ever. Yeah. And the reason is because people like to watch other humans playing. And also, it's, they're structured as, as sort of zero-sum tournaments where there can only be the best human. You look at other things that have been created just in the last 15, 20 years, like the, the X Games, right? You know, I, I think people will still want to watch other people do the Olympics or, or do motocross and all these other things. And so maybe more of our life shifts into, you know, both um, maybe greater leisure on the one hand, more competition over uh, positional goods and more, um, more production that is structured as a tournament. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see many of those points. I'm, I'm just thinking... Again, with, with fully general AI, you would be able to, to generate a, a much more interesting person uh, playing chess, or at least a, a simulation of a, of a very charismatic and interesting uh, human chess player. Why wouldn't people watch that chess player uh, as opposed to, to, the, most, to, the, to the best human? Um, maybe they will. I, yeah. uh, it's hard, <laughs> hard to know. Uh, the question is, who's producing that, that video stream? Because uh, you still need the human behind it that's that had the idea right and um you could imagine people being dishonest about the history of of this chess player that this this simulated chess player could could be a, a fully fully digital fully fully fictional so to speak and just pretending to be human right so it, it could fool people um that's that's the case too no i i can't rule that out but i would just say that um however that person is monetizing they're a deep fake chess player. They're making money, which they're then spending back into the economy. And so they'll produce jobs somewhere. Do you think more people will move into, say, people-focused industries like nursing and, and teaching? Is that, is that a possible way for, for, for us to, to maintain jobs? Maybe nursing, at least in the short run. Uh, I'm not very long on education being, being uh, labor-intensive for much longer. But but you don't think education is at at least say, say grade school education is is that really about teaching people or conveying knowledge or, or to what extent is it is it about conveying knowledge and to what extent is it about the social interaction and you know uh, specializing your your teaching to to the individual student 
Well, AIs are very good at uh, customization and sort of mastery to, to degree. Education is a bundle of things. And, you know, in the younger, for younger ages, it's, it's also daycare. It is socialization, like you said. At the very least, it, mean, it, it suggests a reorga- reorganization of the division of labor. Because the types of teachers that you would select and hire for may differ if the education component of that bundle is being done by AI. You know, maybe you select for people who are maybe don't have any subject matter expertise, but are just highly conscientious and, and good around kids. Or maybe you unbundle from public education altogether and, and it rebundles around, you know, a jujitsu school or, or a chess academy because, you know, you'll have the AI tutor that will teach you math, but you'll still want to grapple with a human. Yeah. Yeah. W- what about industries with occupational licensings like uh, like law or medicine? W- will they be able to to keep up their quite high wages in, in the face of AI being able to, you know, be a pretty good doctor and a pretty good lawyer. It's easy to solve for the far, for you know, long-term equilibrium. Uh, with the rise of the internet, you can do a, a comparison of the, the wage distribution for lawyers uh, pre and post internet. And you know, circa the early '90s, uh, lawyer lawyer incomes were normally distributed around sixty thousand dollars a year. You know, after in the 2000s, uh, they become bimodal, um, and so you have one mode that's still around that sixty thousand dollar range. Those are like the family lawyers. And then you have this other mode that's that's into the six figures, and those are like big law, right? It's the emergence of these law firms where you have a few partners on top and maybe hundreds of uh, of associates who are doing kind of grunt work using Westlaw and LexisNexis and these other uh, legal search engines to um, accelerate drafting and and, and uh, legal analysis. So if that pattern repeats, I could imagine these various uh, you know high skill uh, knowledge sectors to also become bimodal, where in the short run, AI serves as a co-pilot, sort of like Westlaw or LexisNexis was for, for legal research, and enables the kind of 100x lawyer. And uh, and so there's a kind of averages over dynamic. Longer run, you know, you start to see the possibility of doing an end run around existing um, accreditation and licensing monopolies. Where you know obviously the medical American Medical Association and medical boards will be highly resistant to an AI doctor. You know I tend to think that they'll probably end up self cannibalizing because the uh, value prop is so great. Even even you know for doctors to you know do simple things like automate uh, insurance paperwork and stuff like that. But to the extent that there is a resistance, to the extent that you know in ten years there's still a requirement that you must you know have the doctor prescribe the treatment or refer you to a specialist, even if, even though the AI is doing all the work and they're just sort of like the elevator person that's like actually just pushing the button for you. <laughs> It'll be very easy to, to end run that because AI is both transforming the task itself, but also transforming it's the means of distribution. And if you can go to GPT-4 and ask for, put in your blood work and get a diagnosis, that no regulator is going to stop that, right? And so you know, GPT-4 becomes sort of the ultimate doctor of borders. You write a lot about transaction costs and how changes in transaction costs change institutional structures. First of all, what are transaction costs and, and how do you think they'll be affected by AI? So transaction costs is sort of an umbrella term for different kinds of costs associated with market exchange. And this goes back to Ronald Coase's famous paper on the theory of the firm where he asked the question, you know, why do we have corporations in the first place? 
if free markets are so great, why don't we just uh, go and spot contract for everything? And the answer is, well, market exchange itself has a cost. There's the cost of monitoring. You know, if you hire a contractor, you don't know exactly what they're doing. Uh, there's the cost of bargaining. You know, um, you know, having to haggle with a taxi cab driver is a uh, is a friction. And there's the cost of search uh, associated search and information. So taking those three things together, they're not all that companies do, but they're, they they structure the boundary of the corporation. They explain why some things are done in house and some things are done through contracts. If, if there's high monitoring costs, you want to pull that part of the production into the company so that you can monitor the and manage the people doing the production. And some of the f same effects go for the existence of governments, right? Yes, because governments, you know, with, with a certain gestalt, governments and corporations aren't that different. They're kinds of institutional structures that pull certain things in-house and certain things are left uh, for contracting or, or outsourced. And, you know, you even see sort of different kinds of governments having different parallels with different kinds of corporate governance, right? Relatively egalitarian democratic societies like Denmark are kind of like mutual insurers, <laughs> uh, whereas more hierarchical uh, authoritarian countries are more like, uh, you know, like Singapore, say, is more is more of a joint stock corporation. And indeed, you know, Singapore was founded as a, as a uh, entrepot for the East India Company. So there are very deep parallels. And it's also essential, transaction costs are an essential lens to understand why governments do certain things and not other things. All Western developed governments guarantee some amount of uh, basic health health care, right? But um, most, you know, outside of, say, the National Health Service in, in the UK, most of these countries uh, guarantee the insurance. They don't necessarily nationalize the actual providers, right? Um, and the reason goes to transaction costs and, and, and sort of an analysis of the market failure in insurance. Likewise, with roads, uh, you know, it's possible to build roads through pr purely private means. And indeed, um, you know, countries like Sweden, a lot of the roads are run by private associations. But uh, if you have lots of different boundaries, different jurisdictions, micro jurisdictions and so forth, there can be huge transaction costs to, uh, to negotiating up to a, to a um, interstate highway system. Um, and, and those transaction costs then necessitate public infrastructure projects. So the transaction cost in this case would be being a, a private road provider, you'd have to go negotiate with uh, 500 different landowners about building a highway, whereas a government can do some expropriation and, and simply build the, the road much, much faster or with less transaction costs, at least. Yeah, precisely. And we're seeing this, this uh, dynamic in the US with uh, you know, permitting for, for grid, grid infrastructure and transmission. You know, we are, we're building all the all solar and renewable energy, but to build the actual transmission uh, infrastructure to get the electrons from where it's sunny to where, where it's cold requires building you know, high voltage Uh, lines across state lines, across different grid regions, and there are all kinds of NIMBYs and negotiation costs involved, holdouts, and so forth. And so that the more those kind of costs exist, the more it militates towards a kind of um, larger scale intervention that you know federalizes that process. Yeah, the big question then is how will AI change these transaction costs? What what will the effects uh, <laughs> be here? It's easy to say that they will be affected. And, you know, obviously the internet affected them to, to an extent. And we were talking, we talk about sort of the ease of mobilizing uh, protest movements or the kind of uh, the, the sunlight that was put on government corruption. Those are 
those are reflecting declines in the cost associated with information and coordination. I think AI takes us to another level, and I think it's it's important to to think through in part because right now the AI safety debate, at least in the United States, is very polarized between people who who are like everything's going to be great, and people who are like this is like a Terminator scenario or an AI kill us all existential risk. You know, even if we accept the you know existential risk framing, there's still going to be many intermediate stages of AI before we flip on the superintelligence. And those intermediate stages have enormous implications for the structure of the very institutions that we'll need to respond to superintelligence or what have you. The ways we can see this is because all these information and, and monitoring and, and uh, bargaining costs are directly implicated by commoditized intelligence. You know, start with the principal agent problem. You know, there is no principal agent problem if your agent does exactly as you ask and works 24-7, doesn't steal from the till, right? And so AI agents dramatically collapse agency cost. Monitoring. Now that we have multimodal models, in principle, we could have cameras in every house that are just being prompted to say, you know, is someone committing a crime right now? <laughs> uh, whether we want to go that direction or not, um, it gives you a sense that uh, of how, you know, the cost of monitoring have basically plummeted over the last two years and are, are going to go way lower. And so you, you're starting to see this rolled out in the private sector with, um, you know, Activision has announced that they're going to be using language models for um, moderating voice chat in Call of Duty, right? And and this this is a more robust form of monitoring because in the past you would have to like ban certain words, like certain swear words or, or um, things associated with sex or violence. Um, but then people could always get around those by using euphemisms, right? Uh, like on YouTube, you know, the algorithm will ding you if you talk about coronavirus or if you talk about murder or suicide, these these things that that throw off red flags. So what people have taken doing is saying um, they were unalived rather than murdered, right? And that doesn't fool a language model. The, if you ask a language model, you know, if you prompt it in a way to look for sort of broad semantic categories, not just the narrow a, a narrow word is much more robust. And so what that means, you know, what that you already start to see it, like I said, with Activision and, and the use of LLMs and content moderation, you're going to start, you're going to see it in the use of uh, multimodal models for, for productivity ma uh, management and tracking. You know, Microsoft is un unveiling their 365 Copilot, where, you know, you're going to have GPT-4 and, and Word and Excel and Teams and Outlook. But at the same time, you're also going to have a manager who's going to be able to say, you know, to prompt the model, tell me who is the most productive this week, right? Something as vague as that. And so you see this diffusion in the private sector. The question is, does it diffuse in the public sector? There's obvious ways that it would be a huge boon, right? You know, Inspector General GPT could tell you exactly, you know, how, how the civil service is, is working, whether there's corruption, whether there's a deep state conspiracy or something like that, right? And at first blush, a lot of what government does is kind of a fleshy API. Bureaucracies are nodes that apply a, a degree of context between printing out a PDF and scanning it back into the computer. It varies. There's degrees of, uh, of human judgment that are required. But uh, on first order, government bureaucracies seem incredibly exposed to this technology um, and in a way that could diffuse really rapidly because, you know, going back to Microsoft 365 Copilot, Microsoft is the biggest IT vendor in the US government, right? And so you can imagine 
once uh, everyone has this pre-installed on their computer that the person at the Bureau of Labor Statistics who, who's in charge of doing the monthly uh, employment situation report, the, job, the jobs report, you know, at some point he's going to be walking into work and hitting a button, right? That, you know, asking uh, Excel to find the, the five most interesting trends and generate charts and the report is done. And in the private sector, that person would be reallocated and maybe doing things that the computer's not good at yet. Uh, but these uh, these positions are much stickier in government. To the extent that diffusion is inhibited on the public sector side, I worry about the kind of disruption and displacement of government services by a private sector that's that's adopting the technology really fast. This is something we'll we'll talk about in a moment. Before that, I just want to get to um, your complaints about isolated thinking about AI. You've 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 sketched out some uh, some complaint about uh, people thinking about uh, AI only applying to one domain and then not really seeing the bigger picture. What, what are some examples here? Why do you worry about isolated thinking? A few, a few dimensions to this. One is what I've called the horseless carriage fallacy, right? The kind of view that, you know, what automobiles were was just a, a, a carriage with the horse, right? And so that, that anchors you to the older paradigm and you're, it's like you're changing one thing and everything else stays the same. And you neglect all the second order ways that the development of the automobile, you know, enabled the build out of highway systems, the, the total reconfiguration of sort of the economic geography, right? And then implications for institutions like the state where, you know, once you have road networks or telegraph networks or any of these, these kind of networks, it suddenly becomes easier to monitor um, agents of the state in other parts of the country. And so you can, you know, build out more of a federal bureaucracy. And so all these things were second order and were kind of neglected if you just were too focused on, on um, the first order effects of displacing the horses. And in a sense, the, the, the second order effects turned out to be much more consequential in the end. Yes, they seem to always be. And likewise with the internet and sort of the, uh, I think this comes up a lot in, the, in, in how to think about AI use and misuse. There's lots of valid discussions there, but they, they're always very first order. And when you think about the way the internet has disrupted legacy institutions, yes, there's disinformation, but often the thing that's disrupting is not fake news. It's real news that's being repeated with, with uh, misleading frequency, right? <laughs> that's like throwing off our availability heuristic or, or it's valid things that, um, you know, valid complaints, whether, whether, you know, the protests in Iran, right? The protests in Iran have this like striking parallel to the protests following the George Floyd protest um, and protests seen in other countries where they even have like a three word chant, right? Or the, or the case of uh, the um, Arab Spring in, 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 in Tunisia that started with a person self-immolating, right? There's sort of like the structure that repeats where you have like a martyr or like some, some shocking event. And because of the way social media is organized, it synchronizes people around the event um, in a way that's kind of stochastic, like it's like lightning striking. You don't know what event is going to strike on. But once we're synchronized, then we start, you know, moving back and forth in a, in a way that like causes the bridge to buckle. Nothing about that is, is, is a misuse, right? Those are all valid uses, but they're, they're uses under collective action. You know, it's sort of solving not just for the partial equilibrium, but the general equilibrium when everyone is doing this. And, and I think the person who wrote the best on this sort of conceptually was you know, Thomas Schelling. And one of the, his book, little books, uh, Micromotives, Macro Behavior, had a big influence on me as a kid where he, you know, he talks about all these sort of like toy, toy models where you're at a, a hockey game or a basketball game and something 
is happening. Something exciting is happening on the on the in the arena. And so people, the people in front of you stand up to get a better view. And then you have to stand up to get a better view of them over them and so on. And so it cascades and suddenly everyone went from sitting to everyone went to standing and no one's view has improved. Right. And so the, these sort of uh, general equilibria, but where you sort of solve for everyone's uh, micro incentives and, and the kind of new Nash equilibrium that emerges, that ends up being the thing that drives a kind of multi multiple equilibrium shift from one regime to another. And, and throughout, there, there may be no actual examples of misuse involved. It may just be people following following their their individual incentives. I think it's it's worth uh, stressing this point you make about the effects of earlier AI systems on our institutions. That they might have effects that deteriorate our institutions, such that we can't handle later and more advanced AI. And this ignoring this would be an example of isolated thinking and ignoring the second order effects. Right? Yeah. And they also would, it also changes the the sort of um, agenda, right? The AI safety agenda shouldn't just be about the first order of things or an al alignment, you know, very important. But um, you know, it's it's led to a discussion of do we need a new federal agency, and if so, what kind of agency? Whereas it may be more appropriate to think not what new agency do we need, but how do all the agencies change, <laughs> right? And and how do we sort of like brace for impact and and enable a degree of um, co-evolution rather than uh, displacement? I don't know whether the question whether the question of how to get our institutions to respond appropriately is more difficult or less difficult than the problem of aligning AI, but it, it certainly seems very difficult to me. So is there? Is, are we making it harder on ourselves if, if we focus on the on the effects uh, on the second order effects on institutions? I mean, it's unavoidable. I mean, we can't pick and choose uh, what kind of problems, but um, you know, the alignment problem, the hard version is yet to be solved. Uh, but we have many examples of governments building state capacity and, and having kind of, uh, you know, shifting from very, very like clientelistic, sticky, uh, corrupt governments to sort of modernized governments where um, you know, state capacity is built, and then that then that government can sort of break out of the middle income trap and become rich. You mentioned Estonia as a, as an example of a of a country that's pretty advanced on the IT front, on the technology side. Maybe you could talk a bit about Estonia. Yeah, I would just say in, in general, you know, it, it's hard for any organization to reform itself from within when there is path dependency. But I would I would say we, we at least we have examples of it being done, uh, where we don't have examples of alignment being solved yet. <laughs> Um, when it comes to uh, Estonia, you know, Estonia is an interesting case. It's sort of an exception, an exceptional case because after the fall of the Soviet Union and the breakup of the peripheral former Soviet states, they, they kind of had a blank slate, right? Um, they also had a very young population and people who had a kind of hacker ethic within their civil service. And, and so with that blank slate and with that hacker ethic, they were very early to adopt and, and to foresee the way the internet was going to shape government through through a variety of e-government reforms, um, so early in the you know in the late '90s and into the 2000s, they were some of the, the earliest to uh, digitize their their uh, banking system, like e-banking, to uh, build this uh, system called XROAD, which is kind of like a cryptographically secured data exchange layer. It, it resembles the blockchain, but it was about a decade before blockchain was invented. For exchanging information between different government entities, your medical information could be uploaded to this to the system and then be available to all systems that have the 
the right to see that information. Exactly, in a way that's cryptographically secured and distributed. So if a if a, a missile hit the Department of Education, you don't lose your education records because it's it's distributed. Uh, and that also enabled, you know, an enormous amount of automation. Where, uh, for instance, this is my understanding: a child born in Estonia, when once you file that birth record, it more or less initiates a clock in the system that will then then enroll your child in school uh, when they turn four or five, like automatically, because it knows that your child has has uh, aged, and then unless it had a death record to cancel that out, that also means you can you know do taxes and transfers much simpler. You get your get your your uh, benefit within a week. It can integrate across different different parts of of uh, public infrastructure. Like you know, use the same card to to uh, ride the bus as you do to to launch a new business. It also serves as a kind of platform for uh, the private sector to sort of to do government by API, right? To build n- new services on top of government as a platform and um, integrate with with government databases. Yeah, and so the point here for us is that it, institutional reform is possible modernizing government is possible, at least under certain circumstances. We have uh, uh, proofs of, of, of concepts uh, of this happening. The hard thing is the path dependency. There's always a strong instinct to want to start from scratch. And it, it's, it's normally not advisable because, because it's, just, it's too hard. And, uh, uh, and so the, this, is, this is why it's hard in the US. Like, this is why you have African countries that leapfrog us in payment systems and so forth. The, the challenge of this decade or century is how do we solve that path dependency problem? And how do we get to Estonia? You know, it used to be get to Denmark. Now it's, now it's get, to this, get to Estonia um, and find that sort of uh, that pathway up mountain probable. Great. Let's, uh, let's get to your wonderful series of, of blog posts on AI and Leviathan. In this context, what do we mean by Leviathan? Well, this all interrelates. So um, Leviathan was the book Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes wrote uh, the, at the start of the interregnum um, after the English Civil War. And it was his, basically, his early political science, early defense of absolutist monarchy as a way to you know, re- restore peace and order after, um, after a decade of uh, infighting. And Hobbes kind of hit on some basic sort of structural game theoretic properties of you know, why we have governments at all, right? He talked about life being nasty, brutish, and short in the state of nature, war of all against all. And peace is only restored when people, when people who don't trust each other uh, offload uh, enforcement and policing responsibilities to, to a higher power that can then re- restore a degree of peace and order. AI and Leviathan is talking about, you know, how does AI change the story? Does it reinforce the Leviathan? Does it lead to a digital police state a la China? Or is it something that we impose on ourselves? You know, we talked about how multimodal models could in principle be used to uh, put a camera in everyone's house and have it just continuously monitoring for people doing any kind of crime. That's something that North Korea might do. In, in the U.S. context, it's something that we're very liable to just voluntarily do to ourselves because we, we want to have ring cameras and, and uh, Alexa assistance and so forth. And so that leads to a kind of bottom-up Leviathan uh, that is... Uh, potentially no less oppressive and maybe even more oppressive because, because it's, it's, it, there's no one that we can appeal to to, to change the rules. <laughs> yeah, so Leviathan is one way to respond to technological change, but you mentioned two other ways we, we could alternatively respond. 
Right. So, so basically, any time a technology greatly empowers the individual, it it create it, it creates a potential negative externality. Right. Uh, Hobbes called these our natural liberties. In the state of nature, I have a natural liberty to to kill you, or to strong arm you, and um, governments exist to revoke those natural liberties. Right. But but for a higher form of freedom. Right. And so there are sort of any time a technology greatly increases human capabilities vis-a-vis other humans. The three canonical ways we can adjust are, you know, ceding more authority to that higher power, the, the Leviathan option. And then the other two options are, you know, adaptation and mitigation and, and normative evolution. So the example I give is, is uh, you know, if, if suddenly we all had x-ray glasses and could see through walls and see through clothing, you know, one option would we, we have a, a, a draconian totalitarian crackdown uh, that tries to seize all those x-ray glasses. Another option is we adjust normatively, culturally, that we, we uh, our privacy norms wither away and we stop caring about uh, nudity. <laughs> and then the other option is adaptation mitigation, where we, we put in you know mesh into our walls and, and wear, uh, wear leaded, leaded shirts and pants. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess continuing that analogy a bit uh, between the, the, the smart glasses and AI, uh, you, you have uh, this amazing uh, write-up of, of ways in which AI can increase the uh, informational resolution of the universe. So you, you give some examples that are, I'm, I'm sp- thinking specifically of AI identifying people by gate, for example. Right. So, so gate recognition is nothing new. China has um, had advanced forms of gate recognition for a while now. Um, so, you know, even if you cover your face, it turns out we're constantly throwing off sort of ambient information about ourselves, about, about everything. And the way you walk, the particular gate that you have is a unique identifier. Uh, the, another example is, is, is galaxy surveys. Uh, there's a, there, we've had from Hubble telescope to now the JWST, um, you know, tons of astronomical surveys of, you know, distant galaxies and so forth. And all of a sudden, all that old data, it's like, it's like that, that same data set is now, is now more useful because applying more modern deep learning techniques, we can extract entropy that was in that data set, but we didn't have the tools to extract yet. Um, and discover that you know there are new galaxies or 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 other uh, phenomena that we missed. Another example you give is uh, listening for for keystrokes on a keyboard and extracting information about a password being typed in, for example, uh, which is something that of course humans can't do, but but we can do with with AI models. Yeah, so that that was a a paper showing that um, you can reconstruct keystrokes from an audio recording including a zoom conversation so i hope you haven't typed in your password because people in the future and so this goes to you know the fact that it's sort of retroactive that like even if the technology wasn't diffused yet any zoom conversation any recording where someone typed their password in the future will be like those galaxy surveys where someone will go backwards in time and and you know turn up the information resolution of, of that data Yeah, I, I, this is pure speculation, but I wonder if I mean, imagine a, anonymized people in in interviews, say ten years ago, whether they will be able to stay anonymous or whether AI will be able to extract the data about their their face or their voice uh, that that wasn't po- wasn't technically possible when the interview aired. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There there are already systems for like depixelating. Uh, you probably do do something similar for the the voice modulation and and then also sort of you know again going back to like this ambient information we're always shedding identifiers in our, in the way we write, you know, the, the kind of where we place a comma, 
the kinds of adverbs we like to use and so forth. Uh, people just under dramatically underrate, you know, how much information we're shedding um, in part because we're blind to it. It's uh, some people who are uh, taking great efforts to stay anonymous uh, online. People in in the um, cryptography space, for example, will will put their writings through Google Translate to French and then back to English to erase uh, subtle clues to to how they to, that could identify them personally. Why is AI so much better at tasks like the ones we just mentioned compared to humans? Well, it goes back to what we were talking about with sort of putting information theoretic bounds on AGI. When you minimize the loss function in a machine learning model, you're 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 trying to minimize the cross entropy loss. The cross entropy is how many bits does it take to distinguish between two two data streams? And if it takes a lot of bits to distinguish between the two, that means they're relatively indistinguishable. So this going again to the Turing test, like if we have a Turing test where I can tell right away that the AI is different from the human, that that suggests a high cross entropy. But if if it take, if I have to talk to it for for days and do all kinds of adversarial questioning, I might still be able to in the end tell the difference between the two. But we've minimized that that cross entropy loss. And so when you have any arbitrary data distribution that you're trying to predict, whether whether it's you know trying to predict galaxies and astronomical data or passwords from fingerprint data on uh, on a on a phone screen you know all these things embed a kind of physical memory of the thing in question and can often be reconstructed through the, through this this kind of loss minimization where you have a system that asymptotically extracts the entropy that was latent in in the data and this can be done in a way that is often um, quite striking where you know you we can with stable diffusion make fairly accurate predictions of what people are imagining in their mind using fMRI data. And fMRI data is like blood flow data in the brain is very, it's a very lossy representation of what, whatever's happening in the brain. But there's enough, still enough latent entropy in there um, that we can kind of reverse engineer or, or, or um, decompress it into, into a fuller picture. And this could turn into a, to a form of lie detection. Yeah, it, I think it already basically has. Um, if you have you know, fMRI data, <laughs> uh, or, you know, EEGs or other kinds of like direct brain data is probably, you know, it's probably a lot easier, but we already have systems that are, are over 95% accurate, uh, at detecting deception from just visual video recordings. We can see how all of this information that we are continually shedding gives rise to, to, to the possibility of, of, of a Leviathan, either of the private or of the, the government's uh, kind. I wonder what role do you, do you see uh, open sourcing AI models playing here? W- what are the, the trade-offs and in, in risks in, in open sourcing uh, AI? Among the people who are most bullish to open source, there's often a kind of libertarian ethic undergirding it, right? Regardless of whether that's a good idea or not, one of the things I'm trying to communicate to that, to that group is to say that be careful what you wish for because of these kind of paradoxical Hobbesian dynamics, you know, the fact that in America, you never know if someone has a gun or not, you know, on the one hand, the Second Amendment enhances our freedom. On another hand, you know, you don't get the sort of like everyone's doors unlocked and people are, uh, you know, like the police in in England don't even have guns. Like there's a certain freedom that that derives from um, us not all being, you know, heavily armed. (laughs) Um, And likewise with with, uh, open sourcing powerful AI capabilities it empowers you as an individual, 
But in general equilibrium, once we all have the capabilities, the world could look much more oppressive, either because we're all spying on each other all the time and we can all see through each other's walls or because there's a backlash and the introduction of sort of Leviathan type solutions to restrict our ability to spy on each other all the time. And, you know, my, my general sense is that we can only delay. We can't really prevent things from being open source over the long run because there's a sort of trickle down of compute requirements. But in the interim, you know, there are definitely things that are valuable to open source. You know, having 70 billion parameter language models, not a, not a threat. It, it, in fact, I think it's probably useful for alignment research for something like that to be open source. But if you are a researcher and you've developed a emotional recognition model that can tell if, uh, you know, with like 99% accuracy, whether someone is lying or, or, or not lying and whether your girlfriend loves you or not, like these, these things, or, or, or the ability to see through walls using, like I, I talk about uh, uh, the use of uh, Wi-Fi displacement. There are people who have built pose recognition models using the displacement of the electromagnetic frequency of your Wi-Fi and they can see they can it's as wall penetrating so that you can see through walls like what's the rush <laughs> to put that on hugging face um and to like make it as uh democratized as quickly as possible i i would say that if we if we value the adaptation and mitigation pathway as as opposed to the leviathan pathway then there's a there's a value in you know slow rolling some of these things how do you think uh, government power will be, or relative government power will be affected by by AI? So you you write somewhere in, in this long series of, of blog posts that AI will cause an, a net weakening of of governments relative to to the private sector. Why is that? Yeah, specifically, Western liberal liberal governments under constitutional constraints. So, if you if you imagine society being on this kind of knife edge. Um, I talk about this in the context of uh, Darren Mogul's book, The Narrow Corridor, where he describes liberal democracy as sort of being in this corridor between despotism on the one hand and anarchy on the other. Um, and we sort of have to stay in this saddle path where, where society and the state are, are, are kept in balance. If you veer off that path, you can, on the one hand, you know, the state could become all powerful. And that's the sort of China model more authoritarian digital surveillance state. And indeed, you know, China built up their digital surveillance state and their internet firewalls and so forth after watching the Arab Spring and seeing how the internet was destabilizing to weaker governments. And so I fully expect that AI will be very empowering and self-reinforcing of the power of the Chinese government. And indeed, their draft regulations for uh, large language models stipulate that you can't use the model to undermine national unity or challenge the, the government. And, and so they're baking that in. In liberal democracies, we, we think of ourselves as open societies. And the issue is that we're only open at the meta level. There's a public sphere, right? There's, there's freedom of information laws. We have, we, we, have, we have freedom of speech. I don't have freedom of speech if I walk into a Walmart. Wait, right? The Walmart is private property. In, in open societies, it's not that we don't have social credit scores and, and, and forms of um, thicker forms of social regulation. It's just that we offload those functions onto private competing private actors, whether it's a, a church that has very strict doctrines to be mem a member or, you know, other kinds of, of social clubs. The fact that, you know, these days, if you want to go to a, a comedy club, they'll often confiscate your phone at the door because they don't want you recording the comedian's set and putting it online. 
my anticipation is that because of those constitutional constraints that that limit the ability of of liberal democracies to go the China route, right? Um, because of our civil laws or bill, bills of rights and so forth, and also because of a lot of these procedural constraints, this will naturally shift into the private sector, and we, we see that already with the, the use of AI for for monitoring and employment, for for policing speech in ways that uh, would be illegal if done by the state, but are fine if done by by Facebook. To the extent that there's the AI continues to increase these kind of negative externalities and there and therefore puts more value on having a sort of vertically integrated experience, a walled garden that can strip out the negative forms of AI and reinstate a degree of uh, harmony between people <laughs> that, uh, you know, more and more of our social life will be mediated through these sort of private organizations rather than through a, a kind of open public sphere. Or you're imagining that uh, government services will be gradually replaced by private services that are that are better able to respond. Won't governments fight to uphold individual rights? In Walmart or on Facebook, you, you are regulated in ways that the government couldn't regulate you. But you still have the choice to go to uh, Target instead of Walmart or to go to or X instead of Facebook. Isn't that the fundamental thing? So the fundamental thing is the choice between services and won't governments uphold uh, citizens' uh, rights to make uh, those kinds of choices? Yeah, I, no, I agree. And so this, this would be the, the defense of the, the liberal model is that we allow thicker forms of social regulation because it's moderated by choice and competition. And the issue with, with you know, Chinese Confucian integralism <laughs> isn't the... Uh, the fact that it's uh, super uh, oppressive, it's the fact that you only have one choice and you don't have voice or exit. So, uh, yeah, the, but it's, it's, it's obviously a matter of degree, right? Um, when, you know, ride hailing first, first arose, you know, I remember back in 2013, 2014, it wasn't that long ago. You know, I think Uber was founded in 20, 2009, but it really only started taking off in the, in the early 2010s. You know, People thought it was crazy to ride a car with a stranger, and then within five years, it was the dominant mode of uh, ride hailing. And in that five-year period, essentially, we saw a kind of regime change in micro, where taxis went from being something that was regulated by the state through these uh, commissions that were granted, you know, legal monopolies, um, and used licensing. Uh, and exams and other other sort of uh, brute force ways of ensuring quality to competing private platforms where you have you know Lyft or Uber to choose from, and they replace the explicit governance of legal mandates with compete the competing governance of reputation mechanisms, of uh, dispute resolution systems, of uh, structured marketplaces that 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 collapse the the, the bargaining frictions. Right, you, you never have to haggle with an Uber driver; you just sort of get in. And that was obviously a much better way of doing, you know, ride hailing. So even though there was sort of a violent resistance early on, you know, literally like in France, they were throwing rocks off of bridges and cab drivers in New York were killing themselves. So for the people affected, it was a very dramatic sort of regime change, but for everyone else, it was a huge positive improvement. And yet it's only made possible because Uber has a social credit score. If your Uber rating goes too low, you'll get kicked off the platform. Um, and so we're fine with social credit scores. It's, it's when you only have one <laughs> and don't have an option 
um, and it can follow you across all these different verticals, that becomes a problem. Do you imagine that because of of rising danger in the world, you talk about the the externalities from uh, the widespread uh, implementation of of AI uh, all all across society? Uh, because of those dangers, those externalities, you know, you will either use Uber or whatever service, or you're, you 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 kind of can't participate in in society. Do, do you imagine uh, increased pressure in that direction? It does seem to be a, a longer term trend. I don't know if AI will. You know, accelerated. I, I have a, another series of essays that I call um, "Separation Anxiety," and it's a reference to the, the fact that in, in insurance markets, there's kind of two equilibria. There, there's the pooling equilibria where we're pooled together and into one risk pool, and then there's a separating equilibria where the the insurance pool unravels and we break up into, you know, the uh, great power insurance for like senior citizens who never had an accident and stuff like that. And it turns out that insurance markets are competitively unstable. That without government regulation or or social insurance, um, that insurance markets will naturally tend to unravel it because of adverse selection into you know the the high risk people being in one pool and the low risk people being in another pool. And it turns out you can sort of use that as a mental model to look at other kinds of uh, implicit pooling equilibria, right? So in in within company wage distributions. Um, often there is, you know, 20% of the workers who are doing 80% of the work, but they're, they're pooled together under one wage structure. And that was sort of the dominant structure of, of the period of wage compression in the United States in the fifties and sixties. And once we had better monitoring technologies and were able to tell who, who were the 20% that were doing 80% of the work, it suddenly became possible to, to differentiate pay structure. And a lot of the rise in inequality in the United States is actually uh, between firm. So what you know what happens is you know Ezra Klein is like the most productive whiz kid at the Washington Post, and he realizes why don't I just go start my own website, right? And so that that dynamic sort of played out across a variety of domains leads to a world that you know to the extent that these features are correlated that does separate, right? Where you have you know the one star Uber riders driving the one star Uber drivers. <laughs> the drivers driving the riders and you know people who have you know the five-star uber ratings and the perfect credit scores self-sort into communities with other people with perfect driving records and perfect credit scores and that and you know we see that to an extent already with, with the you know enclaves of you know rich rich zip codes with private schools and everyone is sort of self-selected ai could it seems to me that ai would would exacerbate that i mean at first blush just because it Going back to the point about signal extraction, it, it, it can find all these different ways. You're a high risk type, and I'm a low risk type, and so forth, that are probably latent in all kinds of data um, that we don't even need to give permission to the insurance company. They'll just like the same way that they use like smoking or going to a gym as a proxy. There's all kinds of proxies they could use, and, and likewise for employers and how they pay people. Society kind of runs on us not being entirely open and entirely honest all the time otherwise you, you wouldn't be able to have kind of smooth social interactions and so on won't these norms be inherited by the way we use ai yeah i think this is a really big issue um i'm a big fan of robin hansen and uh a lot of his writing um on social status and signaling is is sort of uh presenting humans as basically hypocrites like we're, we're constantly deceiving other people um and, and and we often deceive ourselves so it's better to deceive others as uh, the uh evolutionary biologist robert trivers 
let's point it out. Um, so, you know, all the kinds of polite uh, lies that we tell are, I think, critical lubricants to social interaction. And, and actually, like, it's, it's good that there's a, a gap between our stated and revealed preference. You know, I think a, a world where we all lived our stated preference could be hellish uh, because we don't actually mean it. <laughs> um, and AI, you know, has a direct implication on that because if I can have a pair of AR glasses on that will tell me if you're interested, if you're bored, if you're, if you're if we're on a date and, you know, are you really attracted to me? Um, you know, all that sort of polite veneer, that social veil uh, could be lifted in a way that um, we'll probably want to coordinate to not do, right? But again, it's this Nash equilibrium where, you know, it's in my interest to know whether you're interested or bored. And so I'll want to have the glasses on and my ideal world is where only I have the glasses and you don't. <laughs> and and the other way that, that our hypocrisy is being exposed and challenged is is the need to you know, explicate the utility function that we want these models to, to work under. You know, we need to formalize human values if we want to align these models. And so then we have to be honest and open about the fact that, about the fact that our state of preferences probably aren't our true preferences. And that, and that's, that, that's a very challenging thing because it goes, it cuts right to the nature of, of the human condition um, and involves topics that in, are intrinsically things that we lie, our, lie to ourselves about. You have what you call a timeline of a techno feudalist future, uh, which I found quite interesting. Yeah, it's it's great writing and it's very detailed. We don't have to go through it in, in, in all of its detail, but maybe you could you could tell the story of what happens in what you call the default scenario. This is the scenario in which Western liberal democracies are too slow to adapt to AI, and so we get something like a replacement of government services with more private services. What happens in the techno feudalist future right and and, and this sort of pick, piggybacks and everything you've been, just been discussing right and and I, and I don't want techno feudalist to carry too much of a pejorative um i'm sort of using it descriptively <laughs> uh, and certainly some people um would prefer this this uh this world so the the example of of uber and lyft displacing taxi cabs is sort of a, a version of this in micro where we go from this regulated taxi commission to competing private platforms that use various forms of, of artificial intelligence and uh, information technology uh, to replace the thing that was being done by explicit regulation. And as AI progresses um, and both creates a variety of new negative externalities, whether it's like, you know, suicide drones or, uh, or be the ability to spy on each other. Um, there's going to be a demand for new forms of security and also, and also kinds, kinds of like opt-in uh, jurisdictions that like tie our hands in the same way that we give up our phone at the, before we go into the, the comedy club. And so I, I think this leads to a kind of development of clubs, cl the kind of club structure, uh, maybe at the city level as, as the vertically integrated walled garden that will, that will police and, and, and build defensive technologies around the misuse of AI uh, and at the same time provide a, a variety of like new AI native public goods that are only possible once AI unlocks them. And it's easy to see how this could very quickly displace and eat away at, at formal government services, both because we saw it already with, with Uber, but also um, if you map that, that model to other areas of, of regulatory life, 
you know, it doesn't make sense to have a USDA farm inspector. A human person has to go to a commercial farm and, uh, you know, maybe only goes to that farm once every few years because there's so many farms and only so many people. And, you know, does a little checklist and says, oh, you're, you're not abusing the animals and like it, you got all the process in, in place and you get the U USDA stamp of approval. Um, or does it make more sense to have, you know, multimodal cameras on in the, uh, in the farm 24 seven that are continuously generating reports that throw up a red flag anytime someone sneezes on the conveyor belt. <laughs> and to the extent that government is going to be slow at adopting that, will there be a push for the kind of Uber model of gov governance as a platform where you have the kind of AI underwriter, the consumer reports that um, sells these firms, the camera technology and the monitoring technology and, and, and builds their own set of compliance standards. And then you want to go to those firms or, or what have you that have the stamp of approval of that underwriter because it's much, much higher trust. It, it's sort of, it's sort of like the end of asymmetric information. And you can map, map that from, you know, uh, food safety to uh, product safety to OSHA and workplace safety. You know, there's other parts of government that maybe just rendered completely obsolete, right? Like once we have self-driving cars that are a thousand X more safe than humans, do we need a national highway traffic safety administration? <laughs> uh, you know, once we have sensors that are privately owned everywhere and, and can model weather patterns better than the national oceanic administration, do we need a national weather service or could we bootstrap that ourselves? And then, and then once we have, you know, AI accelerated drug discovery, do we want to rely on the FDA? to be a kind of choke point to do these sort of frequentist uh, clinical trials that um, are inherently slow um, and don't capture the kind of idiosyncrasies and, and, and um, heterogeneity that, that could be unlocked by personalized medicine? Um, or, or do we move to a, an alternative drug approval process that is maybe non-governmental, but um, much more rapid and much more personalized? So that's, that's the overall picture. I'll, I'll just... Uh run through the timeline here uh, picking up on some some uh, some of your comments that i thought were were especially interesting uh you write and this is this is uh, in 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 2024 to 2027 you, you write that the internet will become uh, balkanized and uh, you will have it will become more secure and more private in a sense why why does that happen we're already starting to see this a little bit right um once people realize that the data that's being generated on Stack Overflow or Reddit or whatever uh, is valuable for training these models. Suddenly, everyone's closing their API, you know, and, and consequently, Google searching, Google search, and the Google index have, have have sort of started to degrade already. So I think that will continue for the kind of like privatization of of data reasons. Then we also think about how websites are going to handle sort of the growth of bots and catfishes and catfish attacks and and uh, cyber attacks and so forth. It makes sense that we're going to move from a sort of open, you know, everything goes kind of Twitter-esque platform to things that are, are much more closed because they require uh, human verification and identity ver ver verification to sort of build the trust that you're talking to other people and not, and not deep fakes. And then me medium term, again, over this sort of 2024 to 2027 horizon, I, you could also start to see the emergence of, uh, you know, intelligent malware, sort of modern AI native uh, cyber attacks that uh, 
could be devastating to legacy cybersecurity infrastructure um, in a way that, you know, I talk about could harken back to the, the famous Morris worm that uh, in the late 80s basically shut down the early internet. Like they literally had to partition the internet uh, and turn it, off, turn it off so they could uh, rid, rid the network of the worm. So for all those reasons, I think you, you start to see the internet balkanize and then all, particularly at the international level where we're already starting to see sort of the um, you know, semiconductor supply chain become a critical part of national security. The growth of you know the Chinese firewall, the European Union is is going to have to have their own quasi firewall, and they kind of already do with GDPR and the uh, EU AI Act, and so the kind of nationalization of compute and tele- telecommunications infrastructure that will take off once people understand both the security risks and the value prop of of owning the infrastructure for the AI revolution. Yeah, in uh, in twenty twenty eight to twenty thirty one, you write about alignment turning out to be. Uh easier than than we thought with the increasing scale of of the model that that was somewhat surprising to me what why why does alignment turn out to be easier um and part of this is is uh you know imagining a scenario where alignment is easy so we can talk about what what happens if alignment is easy but i think there are reasons to think that the, the classic alignment problem will be easier than people think I th- you know i think that uh some of the early intuitions about the hardness of the alignment problem Uh, were rooted in a view of, you know, maybe AI turns out to be a very simple algorithm rather than um, like a deep neural network that achieves its generality because of its depth. You know, clearly the the kind of um, value, I forget what Elias Zerukowski called it, but the, the there's a, like a, a value alignment problem where uh, how do we teach the model our values? That that part of the alignment problem seems trivial now because... Uh, our large language models aren't like autistic savants. They're they're actually incredibly uh, uh, sensitive to soft human concepts of of, of value and, and and context. They're not going to have a the paperclip maximizer sort of monkey paw kind of uh, uh, threat models. Don't really make sense in that world. But but there's a difference between uh, the output of the model and the weights or the 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 what the model has learned. And so the just because a model can say You know, it can say the right words that we wanted to say, but what has it actually learned? We are not entirely sure, and so it has learned to satisfy human values to some extent. But has it learned to has learned to want to comply with human value uh, out of distribution, sort of, yeah, in, in other domains and in a deep sense? Uh, I'm not I'm not sure about that. No, I agree. So, so I'm sort of just laying some of the, my groundwork for to explain my priors on this. No, I agree. Like you know, reinforcement learning from human feedback is not alignment. <laughs> In the same way that you know, you could argue that like the coevolution of of cats and dogs with humans led to a kind of reinforcement learning from human feedback in in their in their short run evolution that you know made them look appear as if they you know they experience guilt and shame and these human emotions when in fact they're they're just sort of a simulacra of those emotions because it means that we'll. Um, give them a treat but i i've done plenty of episodes on on deceptions in 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 these models and so on we we don't have to go through that uh, but i just wanted to point out that yeah maybe there's some complexities there so the first my first prior is that these models aren't autistic savants the way they might the way they might have been the second is uh going back to universality well well it is true that you there are that you know it's possible through reinforcement learning from human feedback for example that you you're 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 not selecting for honesty you're selecting for a deep fake of honesty 
But in the bigger picture, the intuition that these models are converging or convergent with uh, human representations should give you some confidence that they're not going to be as alien as we as we think they will be. It's also useful uh, input for thinking about interpretability. You know, some recent work showing that uh, discussing sort of representation interpretability, where where instead of trying to interpret individual neurons, you interpret sort of collections of neurons and and uh, and circuitry and through sort of human interpretable representations. And one of the one of the lessons of universality is that like some of these high level human concepts like happiness or uh, or anxiety like the, these seem like vague uh, psychological abstractions that n there's no way they can correspond to like the micro foundations of the way our brain works, but in fact they may actually be very efficient low dimensional ways of talking about this, what's happening in our brain. And then the third thing is I think that I I just have seen you know my sense is that the work on interoperability is is actually making some some good progress you know whether it can scale is another question but um i think we'll get there in my timeline i talk about sort of agi level models within the you know, human human emulator plus domain i do later on talk about like super intelligence emerging maybe in the 2040s and that's another story right and so i think some of this stuff maybe goes out the window if we have you know models that are bigger than all the brains combined and and, <laughs> and have like strong situational awareness uh, but I don't think that happens uh, this decade. Certainly, certainly, um, certainly not in, with the current way we're building these models. With the way we're currently building these models, I think it comes much closer to a simulacra of the human brain. Got it. In in uh, in twenty thirty six to twenty thirty nine, you talk about um, robotics being solved to the same extent, or maybe even in the same way as as we are now solving uh, language. That was I found that super interesting. Uh, explain to me why. Why would uh, robotics suddenly, uh, or quite relatively suddenly, become uh, much easier? Roboticists have been fighting for decades to get these these models to to walk relatively uh, uh, unencumbered, and uh, it's it's been an uphill battle. Yeah, why why can we solve robotics in the in the twenty thirties? This may end up happening sooner than than uh, I project, but um, I mean, if you look at LLMs, what one of the stylized sort of trends with with large language models is is that you know that natural language processing went from being this you know study of how to make machines understand language went from being you know a, a dozen different sub-disciplines you know you had people working on parsing people working on syntax people working on semantics people working on summarization and classification and these are all different you know directions research directions and then along comes transformer models and you know it just supplants everything and llms can do it all and I think robotics is sort of still in that ancient regime where uh, a lot of, you know, what Boston Dynamics does is ad hoc control models, analytic, analytically solvable, you know, differential equations, different kinds of object recognition modules and, and uh, control action loops and so forth. And so it, it's still in that like early NLP phase where they have 12 different subdisciplines and they're sort of mashing them together. And of course you get something that's not very robust. I think we're already starting to see that paradigm shift to you know end-to-end -end neural network trained models, like uh, you know Tesla, for instance. I think one of the reasons why Tesla cars uh, had a, a sort of uh, temporary decline in performance was because they were undergoing the transition from these ad hoc lane detectors and and stop sign detectors and stuff like that to a fully end-to-end -end neural network uh, transformer-based model. And 
that turned out to be a much more robust way to train the model because you, you know stop signs look different in different countries and like maybe stop sign isn't the thing you, you, you care about really so on and so forth um and so i think the transformer sort of scale deep learning revolution is only now coming to robotics and people in that field have are a little bit cynical because they're used to relatively small rl models thinking that like the fit with you know actuators and and some of the hardware is like a really challenging problem and also believing that we don't have the the, the data sets for it um but then you look at you know there's recent uh, robodog that you may, may have seen on twitter uh fully open source robot model um for a, a boston dynamic style dog it was trained on h100s you know ten thousand human years of, of training and simulation um, and then some fine tuning on real world data. And they have a very robust robot control model that you could plug into all kinds of different form factors um, and have something that can, you know, hop gaps and climb stairs and do all the things that Boston Dynamics robots don't do very well outside of their distribution. Do you think we'll have a general purpose algorithm that we can plug into basically arbitrarily shaped robots that can then navigate the navigate our apartments and, or our construction sites or maybe our highways that's a, that's a that's an interesting vision i think why why is it that we achieve this level of generality if you look at humans you know humans are very good at uh, you know if we've suffered an amputation or you have to go through physical therapy and it's not easy necessarily but but humans are able to adapt to different kinds of uh, physical layouts of our body and I think there will be a trend towards uh, unified robotic control models that aren't like super tailored to, you know, two legs and two arms and so on and so forth. You know, once you've installed it through a little bit of in-context learning or or fine tuning or, or reinforcement learning, adapt to that particular form form factor. And, th and this will parallel the kind of pre-trained foundation model paradigm that is turning currently taking place in LLMs where you have like the, the really big foundation model that can sort of do everything reasonably well. And then you can fine tune it beyond that. If we get to the 2040s in, in your timeline, you talk about uh, massive amounts of compute being available. You talk about post scarcity in everything except for land and, and capital. And then you also talk about the development potentially of, of super intelligence at that point. What what happens there? Who is in control of the superintelligence, if anyone? Yeah, this is sort of where I start to get a little bit tongue in cheek. But um, you know, I, I, I first of all, I talk about how uh, you know I tend to think that you know, once we have exascale computing, and uh, in in you know, I think DOE just built their first uh, exascale computer. Maybe it was a private company, but um, you know, we have like one exascale computer in the world. By the twenty forties, there'll be They'll be commonplace, and if we ever worried about sort of, you know, controlling the supply of GPUs, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know, I don't know exactly how much compute will be in our smartphones, but it will definitely be possible to train a, you know, GP five model <laughs> from your home computer, um, and so any kind of uh, AI safety regime that we build today that doesn't take into account that um, falling cost of compute uh, will probably break down, um, and therefore, you know, amid this broader sort of fragmentation of the machinery of government, the state, I expect more and more government functions to be offloaded into, you know, basically private cities 
uh, HOAs, gated communities. And likewise with the internet, I expect more and more of our sort of permissioning regime for new AI models and deployment to shift to the infrastructure layer where uh, you know, telecommunication providers will be monitoring network traffic for, for um, unvetted AI models and so forth. And we'll have like Chinese style firewalls, but uh, that are specific to a particular local area network. And at that point, the world looks, the, the United States where this takes place looks more like an archipelago of micro jurisdictions of, um, I tend to think that like a, po- a post-scarcity political economy is, looks, looks a lot like, uh, the Gulf states. Gulf state monarchies, right? Because Gulf state monarchies are basically living post-scarcity, right? They have a spigot of oil they can turn on um, and then they can go build mega projects in the desert uh, and they have like infinite labor because they can just import guest workers. <laughs> and so you end up with like this, this uh, but if, if we can't have a Gulf state monarchy in the United States, instead we have a bunch of micro monarchies um, dotting the country. Uh, so I, I sort of jokingly say, you know, um, who's going to stop the free city of California that's like uh, home to all the trillionaire ML engineers and, and tech founders from the decade prior from um, plugging in their their uh, humanity-sized supercomputer into a fusion reactor and turning it on. Yeah, and this is really your the kind of end point of, of the discussion or, or, or your your main point of, of institutions being eroded and then afterwards uh, being unable to respond uh, to, to strong AI. Yeah, and leading up to this, it sounds like a scary dystopian type of thing. It doesn't have to be, right? Um, Uber is not dystopian. Airbnb is not dystopian. Private airports in other countries are are way better than the public airports in the <laughs> United States. So privatization and the sort of techno feudalist paradigm doesn't have to be bad. But what it what it is is more adversarial, right? And you know, people have um, sometimes speculated. You know, what would we have the did the did, did the the crumbling of the Roman Empire was that kind of prerequisite to a Renaissance, right? Because it allowed for these principalities to sort of compete and uh, to get the Florentine, you know, creativity and so forth. Um, I think you know the next couple decades could similarly be a Renaissance for science and technology uh, and for understanding the world. But but it's partly a Renaissance because we'll be moving into a much more competitive, adversarial world where you know, these city states and so forth will be, will be hard to coordinate. And, and so to the extent that there are still these like meta risks where we would value some, um, large scale intra and international coordination, like peace treaties and so forth, the, the disintegration of the United States where this revolution is occurring would be, uh, would be bad for that. You talk about, or you hint at, uh, an alternative path. What we what we've been talking about, uh, your timeline here is the default path. You hint at uh, a path where we have something you call constrained leviathan. What is constrained leviathan? It's limited government, right? So this is this is Darren um, uh, Mogul's word for it from the narrow corridor. And if you if you trace the the rise of sort of uh, of uh, what we associate with liberal democracy. It is part of a particular technological equilibrium, in, in particular an equilibrium that, that uh, favored centralized governments with impersonal rule of law and impersonal tax administration and so on and so forth. So we, we associate today with libertarians with like being anti-government, but the, the basic idea of liberalism is actually associated with strong government 
a, a strong impersonal government that can impose the rule of law. And so if we want to maintain that kind of equilibrium in a world where AI is diffusing on the society level faster than it is on the, on the, on the state and elite level, then we want to accelerate the diffusion of AI within government. And there's you know, obviously lots of low-hanging fruit. We talked about how bureaucracies are basically fleshy APIs. You know, even today, you know, I have a, I have friend, a friend at the uh, FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. They have like a 30-person team that, that uh, is part of the healthcare division. And they're, they're in charge of, you know, policing the entire pharmaceutical industry <laughs> in, the, in the United States for competition. You know, his day job right now looks like manually reading through 40,000 emails that they subpoenaed from a pharma CEO. Right. And today you could take that, those emails and put them into, you know, Claude two or something like it with a big context window and, and ask, you know, five, find me the five most egregious examples of, uh, of misconduct. Um, and it would do that, you know, it might not be perfect, but it's a hell of a lot more efficient than reading through them manually. And obviously big law is going to be doing that. And, and the pharma CEO and his, uh, his personal attorneys will be doing that conversely, you know, to maintain our state capacity in the face of of uh, AI is to, you know, run in, in this arms race, and um, and you can kind of liken it to uh, what in evolutionary biology they call the Red Queen dynamic, which comes from Alice in Wonderland, where the Red Queen tells Alice that sometimes you need to run just to stay in place. And so, I, you know, I think our our government needs to be adopting this technology as rapidly as possible, so that they can basically tread water, and that means both diffusing it in existing institutions, but also being open to you know, radical reconfigurations of the machinery, machinery of government and addressing some of those firmware level constraints that we've talked about, whether it's the lack of a national identification system or the outdated outmoded information technology infrastructure um, or the accumulation of, of old procedural kinds of uh, methods of governance. A, a focused way of doing this is, is what you've, you've uh, called for in a political article, which is a, a Manhattan project for AI safety. Uh, first question here, uh, would it be better to call it an, uh, an Apollo project as opposed to a, Ma a Manhattan project? I mean, the Manhattan project created some pretty dangerous weapons, whereas the Apollo project might have been uh, more benign. I mean, what, what, what the Apollo project and the Manhattan project have in common is that they came from an era of U.S. government where we still built things, where we still had competent state capacity, where we still had you know, a lot of in-house expertise and we weren't saddled with all these constraints. Um, so we, you know, today, we couldn't go to the moon in 10 years. You know, NASA couldn't, you know, SpaceX can. And so our modern uh, Apollo projects are being done by the private sector through, through competitive contracts. And so, you know, one of the messages of my piece on the Manhattan Project is to say, the reason I make this analogy is not just because AI is a Oppenheimer-like technology, but also because responding to it will, will require a throwback to that, those kind of institutional forms where we gave the people at the top a lot of discretion and sort of gave them an outcome um, and let them solve for that outcome without having a bunch of uh, prescriptive rules about how to solve for that outcome. And then, the, and then the second reason to make the analogy is, you know, OpenAI and Anthropic, uh, they both have, you know, contingency plans for developing AGI and having like a, you know, a runaway market power, right? Um, you know, in the case of OpenAI, it's their, their nonprofit structure in the case of Anthropic, it's their public benefit trust, where they both are envisioning a world where they could potentially be the first to build AGI and become basically trillionaires. And so at that point, they need to become basically, uh, uh, you know, governed by a nonprofit board. You know, at that, at that point, 
and that's not where progress ends, obviously. Like, there's going to be continued research. It would make sense for the U.S. government to step in and say, let's do this as a joint venture. We're not, we're no longer competing. In fact, the basic structures of capitalism and market competition are starting to break down. Let's just pull this together into a joint venture, study the things that require, you know, huge amounts of capital that the private sector doesn't have, but the government can. You know, the government, the government, U.S. government spent $26 billion on the Manhattan Project in today's dollars. When you think about the financial resources of, of nation state actors to put behind scaling, you know, it's nothing like what Microsoft or Google have, you know, what, what, when's our first uh, $200 billion training run, right? <laughs> what kind of things, what kind of things can come out of that? I think that's something that you want to do with the de- Defense Department's involvement and working with these companies in a joint way through, you know, secure data centers. Um, and doing kind of like gain of function style research that really is dangerous, um, and and more like you know more Manhattan Project than than Apollo Project. What would be the advantages here? We would be able to spend more to slow down uh, capabilities research and spend more of our of the resources on say mechanistic interpretability or evaluations or alignment in in, in general um, because. Now the the top AI corporations have kind of combined their efforts under one uh, government roof. Yeah, yeah, and 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 my in my vision, they're still allowed to pursue their commercial verticals. And I have an extended version of the proposal where I talk about you know needing sort of biosafety style categories for high risk, medium risk, and low risk styles of AI. That very that closely parallels what Anthropic recently put out with their recommendations for sort of a BSL categorization of AI research. Um, so I'm I'm really talking about that like BSL four lab and beyond style stuff. And some of that stuff, you know, some of it will be to accelerate alignment and interoperability research to sort of do versions of like the OpenAI Super Alignment Project where they're dedicating 20% of their compute to study alignment. A- another part of it will be to forestall competitive race to the bottom dynamics so so that they can coordinate and not you know violate antitrust laws and then the the third thing is sort of the the gain of function stuff that we really only want to be doing with like very very strict oversight compartmentalization kind of pooling of talent and and uh, resources so we can you know share knowledge on alignment and safety um, but then also because government has this huge spending power relative to the private sector, you know, anytime you build a supercomputer, you're basically borrowing from the future. You're trying to see what like the smartphones 20 years from now are, will be capable, capable of. And so if we want to sort of get ahead of the curve and see where scaling is leading, then I think governments uh, are really the only actor that can waste a bunch of money, basically scaling up a system and seeing, seeing what comes out of it. Yeah, when we talk about gain of function research in in AI, it's it's an analogy to to the gain of function research that's done on viruses in in bio labs, but done for AI models. And and this could this could be uh, experimenting with creating more agent like models or uh, inducing deception in a model and planting it in a simulated environment, see what seeing what it does, uh, or you know enticing it to acquire more resources. But again, perhaps in a in a safely uh if if this is even possible in a in a safely constrained uh, simulated environment and and this is the type of research that we could do in in this manhattan project this this government lab uh, because we would have 
excellent cybersecurity and secure data centers and the combined efforts of of the most capable people in in AI research. If you've watched Oppenheimer, the movie, you know, a lot of that revolved around suspicions of communist spies and so on. And, uh, you know, we really don't have great insight into the operational security of of, uh, the major AGI labs. Um, And that's something that, you know, bringing it in in house of the of the Defense Department would, would they would necessarily have to, you know, disclose everything they're doing, but also hopefully beef up their operational security. Yeah, they're kind of stuck with a startup mindset, but they're not developing a startup product. They're developing something that, in my opinion, could be more dangerous than than the average startup. Yeah, and, and Dari Amade has said as much that we should just assume that there are Chinese spies at, at uh, all the major AI companies and at Microsoft and Google. When we think about uh, gain-of-function research in AI, how do you think about uh, the value of, of gaining information about what the models can do and what the models can't do uh, versus the, the risk we're running? Um, it would be a tragic and ironic uh, death for humanity if we experimented with dangerous AI models uh, to see whether they would uh, destroy us and then we hadn't constrained them properly and they, they actually uh, destroyed us. So how do you... How do you think of that trade-off between gaining information and uh, avoiding lab leaks? Yeah, hopefully, lab leaks are less likely than in the biology context, where um, you know getting a little bit of uh, blood or urine on your on your shoes as you walk at the door. You know, it's a, it's a difficult thing to talk about in part because we just went through a pandemic that very probably was caused by a BSL four lab leak, and and so. You know, one saving grace is that AI models don't get caught in your respiratory system. <laughs> um, uh, and so hopefully there's forms of compartmentalization that are much, much more robust than in the biology context. And to the extent that this research is going to be done anyway, you know, it would be much better to move it off site and hopefully in a way that in a, you know, facilities are air gapped and so forth, rather than, you know, what. You know, Microsoft is doing right now. They Microsoft just recently announced their Autogen AI, which are sort of agent-based models, um, very similar to like AutoGPT, but like that work. <laughs> and they're doing this through a Creative Commons, totally open source uh, framework. All this, all this capabilities work is gain of function research, where we draw the line between doing things that are intentionally dangerous or doing things that are dangerous, but we're we, we're kind of pretending that they're not. Um, is is hard. Uh, I I do think there's and Paul Cristiano has also agreed with this sort of threat models that we, we would be valuable to be running in virtual machines uh, to see you know if the AI comes develops awareness situational awareness and tries to escape but it escapes into a simulated world that we built for it. Okay, let's end by talking about a recent critique of expecting AGI um, to to arrive uh, pretty uh, in in a short time. This uh, revolves around uh, interest rates, and um, I guess the, the the basic argument is, or the basic question is, if AGI is imminent, uh, why are real interest rates low? I can explain it, but you're the economist, so maybe you can explain the reasoning here. So it's it's really a question of how efficient are markets and and how much foresight do markets have. You know, we're coming out of a world of very low interest rates, of ultra low interest rates, near zero interest rates. And one way, one way to think about that is there's a surplus of savings relative to investment. And so one of the reasons interest rates have been in, in secular decline is because populations are aging, 
And so old people have a huge amount of savings built up. Um, and meanwhile, we're going through this sort of technological stagnation. So the amount of savings relative to the amount of profitable investments uh, was out of whack. And so that pushes interest rates down. In a world where AI takes off, it's a world where we have enormous op investment opportunities, where we'll be building data centers left and right and not, we can't do it fast enough, where there's new products, new, new commercial opportunities left and right. Um, and so you would expect uh, in that world where the singularity is near, so to speak, uh, to be one where the markets begin forecasting rapidly rising interest rates because the savings to investment balance is starting to shift. And in, in addition, there's a, a long run stylized fact that, that interest rates, real interest rates track growth rates. Um, and so if, if GDP growth, GDP growth takes off, you'd also expect at least nominal rates to, to also take off. Um, and so you know, some have argued that looking at current interest rate data, like the, you know, the five year, 10 year, 30 year treasury bonds, that the markets are not predicting AGI. You know, the, the two responses to that are one, first of all, interest rates are up quite a bit. <laughs> Nothing's monocausal. There's lots of confounding factors. Um, is this to some extent the market's anticipating a, an investment boom? You know, maybe not, they're not anticipating full AGI, but they're, they're seeing the way LLMs are going to impact, you know, enterprise and, and sort of baking some of that in. And then the second piece would be, okay, to the extent that they're not pricing in AGI, how much foresight do markets have anyway? Before we discuss uh, market uh, efficiency, I just want to just give a couple of, of intuitions here. Uh, if AGI was imminent and uh, it, would, it, it was unaligned, say, and it would destroy the world uh, in five years, well, then it doesn't make a, a lot of sense to save money. Similarly, if, if AGI is about to, to explode growth rates, well, then a lot of money will be available in the future. You're about to become very rich, so it doesn't make sense to, to, to save a lot now. And uh, the, the pool of available savings determine the, what's available for lending, which determines uh, interest rates. But uh, let's, let's discuss yeah, whether markets then are efficient on this issue or to what extent they're efficient. Right. So this is the efficient market hypothesis, which, which um, comes in strong and weak forms. So the strong form of the efficient market hypothesis would say that markets aggregate all the available information and are our best sort of point estimate of anything we, we care about. The weaker form, uh, which I think is uh, more defensible, is that markets can be wrong, but, you, but they can be wrong longer than you can be solvent, right? And so you can, you can try to short a company that, like Herbalife, you know, famously, there was a big short position on that, and because Herbalife sort of looks like it's a multi-level marketing Ponzi scheme, but yet the, the, the hedge fund that did that lost you know, several billions of dollars before they ended their position because the markets were stayed irrational longer than they could stay solvent. The second factor is the, weak, the weaker versions of the efficient market hypothesis are sort of based on a no arbitrage condition, right? They say markets are efficient only insofar as you can arbitrage uh, an inefficiency, right? And so, you know, you look at some prediction markets, for example, um, they predict it. They'll, they'll often have very clear um, inconsistencies across markets that look like they're irrational. But then you realize, oh, I can only make like $7,000 total in the, on the website and there are transaction fees and I have to, you know, there, there's work involved. And so if the market isn't very deep or liquid, th there may be inefficiencies that exist, not because the market's inefficient, but it's as efficient as it can be under the circumstances. 
And when it comes to AI, you know, how do you arbitrage? Uh, you know, I've been thinking for a while now that Shutterstock, their, their, their market cap should be collapsing, right? Because, you know, we have image generation uh, that is proliferating. And yes, people will make the argument though, Shutterstock has all this, uh, all this image data, they could build a better image model. You know, maybe it seems like it's cannibalizing their business. It's sort of turning a moat into a commodity. And yet Shutterstock's uh, market cap has basically held constant throughout this uh, recent rebirth of image, uh, birth of image, image generation models. What if you borrow a lot of money uh, cheaply and then put it into an index of, of semiconductor stocks or, or just uh, IT companies in general, or even just the general S&P 500, say? Would that be a way of arbitraging uh, this AGI forecast? Yeah, I, I would say if you have short timelines, you should be putting a lot of money into equities. This is not financial advice, I should say. <laughs> right, and that's and I mentioned early, earlier that you know, Paul Cristiano has said in interviews that he's twice levered into the stock market. He, he basically owns a bunch of AI-exposed companies, and he's, he's borrowed you know, his, uh, enough money to double his investments. Uh, so that's you know, putting your money where your mouth is. When you look at market behavior over the long stretch of time, you know, markets didn't anticipate the internet very well. Um, you know, they, there was a, a, a short run bubble um, that led to a boom and bust of, of dot-com stocks. But when, at, in terms of the real economy, the internet just kept chugging along, it kept being built out. And eventually, the, eventually a lot of those investments ended up paying off, even if you, you know, rode through the bubble. You know, markets are made up of people. Some of the biggest capital holders in the markets are like institutional investors, pension funds, uh, life insurance companies, uh, governments, you know, like the, like the uh, Saudi Arabia or the Nor Norwegian pension fund. And often these are, you know, making safe bets. You know, they're not taking very heterodox views on, on, on markets. Um, and so as a result, Markets can be a little bit autoregressive. They're a little bit biased to the past, you know, past is prologue, and, and prone to kind of mul multiple equilibria, where there's two prices that Shutterstock can be. Shutterstock could be a $50 stock or it could be a $0 stock. And at some point, the market will update and will undergo through like the great repricing, and all these asset prices will flip in relatively short order. The efficient market hypothesis has to be false, or else we wouldn't have Silicon Valley, right? We wouldn't have founders that that we, we wouldn't have elon musk right so i would just say the markets are wrong and partly they're wrong because to be right would require having a bunch of relatively uh bespoke and kind of esoteric priors about the direction of the technology that are only now just sort of percolating into the mainstream yeah and that the big kind of capital allocators can't really respond to because they're risk averse Exactly. Um, now, that doesn't mean like Renaissance technologies won't respond to it, but they're not going to move the market. Samuel, uh, thanks for this conversation, and I've, I've learned a lot. Thank you.